You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood. How you doing? I think it's been a while since I explained why I've opened almost every episode of this podcast with the phrase, Greetings, Finchwood. So in case anyone's wondering, I am not Finchwood. This podcast is named after a community, so if you're a regular listener, or even a visitor really, you are also Finchwood because you're part of this conversation too. And I think that's important for me to say every now and then. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed last week's episode about prayer. It was a bit of a long one, though I think that was to be expected since prayer is such a vital topic. Without prayer, nothing else we talk about this season will be very useful to us at all, since it's not the practices of Christianity that actually transform us. Instead, it's living out those practices in the context of a relationship with God, so if you missed the previous episode, go back and listen to it. This week, on the other hand, we're talking about how to read the Bible, which is almost as important. This week shouldn't take nearly as long, though, since we covered so much of this material in episodes 8 through 12 of season 2, which of course was about the basics of Christianity. So some of this episode will be review, but there will be some new material too, since those episodes were mostly about what the Bible is, and now we're talking about how practically to read it and make it a part of our lives. So it's a related topic, but not quite the same material. Before we really get into it here with good strategies and application points, I need to make it clear that there isn't necessarily a right way to go about reading the Bible. By that I mean that there are a lot of different ways you can incorporate this book into your life, and any of them is probably going to be more beneficial to you than not touching it at all. Much like what I said last week in the prayer episode that I just mentioned, a lot of this is going to boil down to adopting whatever habits and strategies work best for you in your life, in your context, to get you into the Bible, and to get the Bible into you. I don't believe for a second that God is honored by mindless busywork. Every time he recommends something to us or demands something from us, it's always for our own good and not his. Just like with prayer, reading the Bible is not something that you have to do to earn God's favor or to make him love you more or even to make him love you at all. You're not gaining anything from him by reading, not even his happiness. What you are gaining is your own transformation. Spending time with the Bible and letting it become a part of your thought process is something that God definitely will use for the purpose of transforming you. If you want to be more like Jesus, which is what this podcast is all about, one of the best ways to do that is by reading about and dwelling on what Jesus and his first followers said and did all those years ago. Over the centuries, a lot of Christian writers have compared prayer to breathing. And along those same lines, we tend to compare the Bible with food. You can live for weeks without touching any food, but eventually you need to nourish yourself with something. And likewise, God has given the Bible to us as spiritual food that our souls can be sustained by. At the risk of overextending this food analogy, However you want to dice it up, when your meal times are, what flavors you choose, how much you chew and savor it, and what you season it with, that's all up to you. But beyond that, this is something that doesn't have to be a chore. There are enjoyable ways to eat, and even healthy food can taste good. Half the reason that many of us have decided that it doesn't taste good 
is simply because we've been told that it's healthy. And there is something in our human nature that rebels against being told that we have to do something or that we should do something. That puts a bitter taste in our mouths. Just like with food, there are enjoyable ways to consume this spiritual nourishment. The other half of what's going on, at least with our food habits, is that we might not be preparing it in a way that appeals to our individual tastes. Nutritionally, eating a salad is the same as hiding that same salad in a smoothie. Either way, you're consuming those nutrients. Personally, I think that sitting down and eating a salad as is, is actually a lot more fun than drinking a salad. But you may not feel like you have time for that. Similarly, you may find that you don't always have time to sit down and read a physical Bible. But maybe what would work for you is an audio Bible, something that can be consumed on the run. Furthermore, maybe your appetite isn't the same as other Christians. You may have the capacity to take in 10, 20 chapters a day, or maybe you only have room for a chapter every day, or even just a few verses. I'll let you in on a little secret here. It can actually be far more fruitful to read one verse and really meditate on it than to speed through the whole Bible without really understanding what you read. Sometimes a few verses, if you really chew on them, dwell on them, and extract their meaning throughout the day, can transform you at a depth that those read-the-Bible-in-a-year plans can never reach. Once again, just like with eating food, you can't digest what doesn't stay in your system for very long. If you want to absorb everything the text has to offer you, the best way is to take your time and truly digest it, make it a part of you. It is completely by coincidence, by the way, that we're starting this season around the new year when so many people make resolutions to pray more, read the Bible more, and so forth. If you want to set some kind of goal for yourself for 2023, go for it. But please know that there's no expectation on God's part, and certainly none on my part, that you should read a certain number of chapters per day or read the Bible in a whole year. Those types of goals are very popular, especially in the churchy subculture that I come from. And what I find telling about that is that there's this weird, self-deprecating humor surrounding it where we acknowledge that the vast majority of us get to the second week of January and give up because we're not motivated by anything other than guilt and a vague feeling that this is something we're supposed to do. In other words, very few people stick with their reading plans. Instead of getting more Bible in our lives, what we're really giving ourselves is another obligation that we're going to feel bad about not living up to. I know some of that has to do with an unhealthy relationship that we as a larger culture have with self-improvement goals overall. And once again, that is something that happens especially around the new year. But with Bible reading, there's also this extra value judgment attached because we feel like we're disappointing God if we don't read our Bibles every single day. Whether or not you're a, quote, good Christian, unquote, is seen in part as depending on whether you read the Bible this morning or not. Now, just to set some of you free from that kind of guilt trip that's been laid on you, perhaps by yourself, perhaps by someone else, let me just mention that the vast majority of Christians throughout history have been illiterate. They couldn't read the Bible for themselves. Someone had to read it to them, and often that would only happen once a week, and it was only selected passages, and I'm not saying that that's a great way to do discipleship. But what I am saying is that if God is pleased with their level of biblical literacy, then he certainly can be pleased with those of us who have the ability to read some of it and do, whatever that looks like. 
Now, once again, I'm not saying that reading the Bible daily, systematically, is at all a bad idea. Far from it. If you're the type of person who has the self-discipline to do that, then please go right ahead. It's a great idea, and a four-minute Google search will tell you that there are a number of good reading plans that will take you through the Bible in some order that makes sense, whether that's from front to back, or a different genre on each weekday, or a chronological plan, or what have you. All of those are great, but on the other hand, I have to be honest with you. I personally am someone who has difficulty nailing down that kind of personal consistency when it comes to my day-to-day routine. This is a struggle. And I'd like to suggest that the whole guilt New Year's resolution complex that I just described to you is the wrong way to go about incorporating the Bible into our lives. So that does beg the question, what would the right way look like? My goals for this new year are simple. I'm not focused on a number of chapters per day or reaching any kind of benchmark where speed is concerned. My goal is to read some of the Bible each day. That's it. If I've read so much as a verse, I've accomplished my task. And usually I do that in the morning when I wake up, in between the daily wordle and the planking challenge that I'm trying to work on. And I'd like to invite you to join me in that goal. Just open it up and read it. Whatever time of year it is, it doesn't have to be a New Year's resolution. Either way, just open up your Bible and read it. And tomorrow, do the same, and eventually it will change your life. Now, do I recommend that you eventually read the entire Bible? Yes, wholeheartedly, that is a great goal. I have read every verse of the Bible at least once, and most of them I've read quite a few times, and I'm glad that I can say that. But I've also been doing this for multiple decades. If it takes you years to get there at a snail's pace because you really want to know what it is that you're reading, then please take your time. If you're going to read some parts more than others along the way, I recommend giving extra attention to the New Testament and specifically the Gospels. They tell the story of Jesus, and he is the central figure in the whole Bible, so you really can't go wrong by reading his words and actions again and again. A lot of people also give extra time to the Psalms, and that's not a bad way to do things either. Now, to clarify, when I said earlier that there isn't a right way to read the Bible, What I don't mean is that any way you could use it is equally helpful, or that any interpretation is equally valid. I figure if you're going to invest all this time and energy in reading a book, you might as well get the most out of it, and part of that comes down to knowing how to read what you're reading. There are a few genuinely unhelpful approaches out there that aren't going to do much in the way of helping you become more like Jesus. For instance, I know people who play what I call Bible roulette. That's where you just open the Bible to whatever random page, stick your finger down, and expect it to land on some good advice for your current situation. And that's honestly not even how books work at all, whether it's the Bible or not. We're not talking about a magic eight ball here. Lots of us probably also remember the stories from grade school of kids who put their textbook under their pillow, expecting the information to seep into their brains via osmosis. And while I'm pretty sure we all understood that to be a joke at the time, people have on occasion expected the mere presence of a Bible in their homes or in a situation to make things go according to its teachings. And that's also not how books work. At the risk of stating the obvious, you've got to open them, read them, understand them, and then apply them. None of those steps is really negotiable here. 
two final uses of the Bible that I will be bold enough to say are wrong ways to go about it are when people either underinterpret or overinterpret the text. Usually, we underinterpret the Bible by taking words and phrases out of context and just applying them at face value without doing the hard work of saying, what does this really mean? On the other hand, we can sometimes overinterpret it by reducing everything to subjective symbolism or by relying on numerology or superstition to give us whatever arbitrary meaning we like the best. We all know how ordinary books work, that we have to read them, understand them according to what their authors really meant, and then apply them in a way that's logically consistent. And for the most part, the Bible follows those exact same guidelines. This is the part that I'm not really going to get too much farther into, because I feel like the ideas of context, proper interpretation, and honestly just not misusing the text of the Bible by twisting it to serve our own purposes, were covered pretty well in Season 2, so for the full version, I recommend going and listening to those episodes. In case you missed it though, the short version of what was covered at that time can be summarized briefly into the following points. Point number one is please read each book and even each passage of the Bible as the type of literature that it obviously is. In other words, if you're reading poetry, treat it like poetry. Expect a certain amount of flowery, non-literal language, some mild symbolism, some emphatic repetition, and so forth. On the other end of the spectrum, if you're reading what sounds like history, assume that the author intends for you to treat it like history, and then do the same kind of thing for law codes, drama, biography, prophecy, and personal correspondence. Read those sections of scripture as you would read those types of documents. Principle number two is that the Bible was written thousands of years ago, so it helps to learn as much as you can about the historical and cultural context that it was written into so that you can understand how its original readers would have been expected to hear and receive it. One example off the top of my head is that there are several references to a person sitting or dwelling in the city gate, and in my modern-day mind, my first thought could be that we're talking about homelessness. After all, if someone lives in the city gate, they're probably a beggar, right? However, when you find out that in ancient times, the elders and leaders of the city would sit at the gate, and that was basically their courtroom and the city hall, suddenly it means something far more favorable. It's a place of honor and respect. And knowing that tidbit about the culture changes my understanding of all those scripture references. Principle number three is to read every word, every verse, every chapter in the context that it's found in. If you're like me and you're like pretty much everyone else in the world, you probably don't like it when people misquote you or use your words out of context. And I guarantee you that Jeremiah and Paul would feel the same way if that happened to them. A great example of how important this is comes from the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapter 2, verse 10. A lot of translations start this verse off with the words, and David slept with his fathers. At face value, with no context, that sounds incredibly scandalous to say the least. I'll admit David did not have a healthy relationship with his father, but it wasn't that kind of unhealthy, and even if you read the rest of the verse, you quickly realize it's talking about his death. He died, and he was buried in the tomb that was traditionally used by his ancestors and that interpretation makes a lot more sense. Principle number four is to be mindful of the difference between prescriptive and descriptive passages. Descriptive means exactly what it sounds like. This is a description of a thing that existed or an event that happened. 
It might be good or bad, either way, these are just the facts. Prescriptive, on the other hand, is something like advice or a commandment. Think of a prescription. This is the thing that's being recommended to you. Prescriptive passages expect you to do the thing that it's talking about. Readers of the Bible often get into a lot of trouble by assuming that descriptive passages are prescriptive and vice versa. A great example here is that the Bible mentions polygamy and it describes several situations where men had multiple wives, but it never commands or even recommends polygamy. To the contrary, it always describes it along with negative consequences that occurred in those people's lives. The description is for us to learn a principle from, but it's not for us to emulate because it's not prescriptive. If anything, the takeaway here is that having multiple spouses isn't the best idea. Principle number five is to read a reliable translation of the Bible, one that's scholarly and literal enough to faithfully communicate the original meaning to you, but also one that's casual enough for you to read it comfortably. For beginners, I recommend either the New Living Translation or the New International Version. Those are both written in relatively plain language, but the translators still did a great job communicating what the original text said. For more experienced readers, I would recommend something more like the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible. With both of those, the vocabulary might be at a bit of a higher level or the translators may have made some sacrifice in terms of readability in order to faithfully convey some subtle nuance of the grammar of the text or something like that. If you have time, reading and comparing multiple translations is a great way to make sure you're understanding a passage fully, since different translators might cover different shades of meaning within a Greek or Hebrew word. Of course, if you're doing any serious study and you have access to them, the original languages are incredibly useful. But for 99% of people, an English translation should be entirely sufficient. Finally, if you're only going to read one version of the Bible, I don't recommend the King James Version, nor do I recommend paraphrases like the Message or the so-called Passion Translation. Principle number six is that the frequency with which something is mentioned in the Bible is generally related to its degree of importance. All four Gospels relate the story of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And most, if not all, of the rest of the New Testament letters mention it as well because that's the central event without which everything else in the whole faith falls apart. However, not all of them tell the story of Jesus walking on water or even his birth because those aren't as crucial. And the same principle applies for moral teachings. There are a handful of references scattered throughout the Bible saying that getting drunk is foolish if not sinful. But there are several times as many verses saying that it's evil to mistreat immigrants or poor people. From that, we can infer that God cares more about the second issue than the first. Not that he wants his people to become alcoholics, but how we treat the disadvantaged is a much bigger question in his mind. And finally, principle number seven is that any specific passage generally has one interpretation. That's the meaning that the author had in mind when he or she wrote the passage in the first place. However, that same passage might have any number of different applications. And by applications, I mean how we use the text to change our lives based on the truth we find in it. Because our lives are constantly moving and changing, the same passage may speak to multiple situations all at the same time. 
Now, I hope those seven points make sense. If they don't, or honestly, even if they do and you want a lot more information, of course I recommend giving those season two episodes a listen. I'm also developing a few short videos about different Bible study tools that should pop up on the Finchwood YouTube channel after I get more of the prayer model tutorials done. So once again, it would be good to subscribe there if you're interested in more info about the specifics of Bible reading and interpretation. Also on that note, if you have specific questions about how to read the Bible, please send them my way. I would love to cover them. Finally, please leave a good review if this episode was helpful to you, tell a friend about this podcast, and do join us next week for episode 4 of this season, How to Find and Join a Church. I'll see you then, and meanwhile have a great week, and thanks for being a part of this growing Finchwood community. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic, or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.